So I want to talk to you for tonight. Now tomorrow I'm going to do something a bit different because um, it's your, your regular church service. But tonight is, is a teaching night that I can, uh, I, I'm under no pressure to be an evangelist. If you're here on Saturday night uh, and the World Series is on, I'm assuming you're a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Um, so I don't, I don't need to convince you to do that. Uh, but I, I do want to talk to you about living. So I want to talk to you about money. I want to talk to you about having abundance. Uh, I want to talk to you about what it means to live here. And let me be clear about a couple things. One, if your only goal, like your only goal in life is to go to heaven when you die, then nothing I'm going to say tonight will have much relevance to you. Like if you're thinking, ah, oh, if I can just get through this life so I can go to heaven, well, one, I think that sucks. Um, two, I think that's boring. I, I think um, th that was okay in Jesus' day when the average age of death was 32. Uh, average age of death in Jesus' day was 32 years old. So till death do us part meant something totally different. It was like, you know, put up with their crap for another 10 years, you'll die, it'll all get better. Now, you got to live with someone to 84, 84. So be careful. If you want my first bit of advice on money, marry well. If you marry poorly, it's, you're going to be broke. So, uh, so but, but in, in a day where you live on average to 84 years old, how we live on this earth takes incredible proportions. If, if all you want to do is get through this life to go to heaven, then nothing I'm going to say matters. But if, if, you, if you say, you know what, I don't want to simply go to heaven when I die. I want to be so blessed that I can say yes to the infinite possibilities that Jesus has for my life here in order to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. As Christians, we shouldn't be simply going to heaven when we die, although we embrace that part of the story. It, but we should be looking around and saying, you know what, that looks like hell over there, and I'm going to partner with Jesus to bring heaven to every place I see hell here. If you want to live better here, then I, I've got something to say. So, um, the, the first point I really want to make before we even get into the teaching is this. To be a functional member of any part of creation, you have to master the art of giving and receiving. This is true in any place in all of creation, all right? So, everybody take a deep breath in. Now, just refuse to breathe out again you will pass out eventually. Eventually, your body will make you breathe out. Why? Because you have to receive, and at some point, you got to give back. And everybody, everybody has to do that. If you don't do that, the trees die. If the trees die, you don't have air, and you just can't. It, it doesn't work. You have to master the art of giving and receiving. If you eat three meals a day and never go to the toilet, you will die, or you will hope you were dead. Um, like a brother's got to receive, but then at some point a brother's got to give, right? <laughs> you have to master the art of giving and receiving. If any part of your body or creation gives and doesn't receive, it's a problem. Or if, it does, if any part of creation only receives and never gives, it's also a problem. The only thing that they know of on the earth that receives and has no place to give out is the Dead Sea. Because it's the lowest place on earth. There's nowhere for it to go. And the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea. Nothing can live there. Why? Because when you don't master the art of giving and receiving. So, so you might be thinking, oh, Shane, you're going to pick out some Bible verses. It's going to talk about money. And yes, but this has nothing to do really with money alone. As much as it has to do with it's a principle of living as a functional member of creation on this earth. There's literally a hundred examples that we can give where giving and receiving 
is the key to being a functional member of that piece of creation. Uh, money's no different. If, if you uh, listen to teaching that sounds like this, give, 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 and you master the art of being a giver, but then no one ever teaches you how to master the art on the receiving end, you will be broke. If you master the art of giving without mastering the art of receiving, you're going to be broke. The other side of that is true as well. If you only master the art of receiving and you never create an outlet to master the art of giving, it will destroy you on the inside. So we have to master the art of giving and receiving. The problem with how I've heard tithing taught in the church, and not this church in particular, but in general, I've heard tithing at times taught as a magic pill to fix stupidity, right? So it just sounds something like this. Oh, if you'll just tithe, your life financially will automatically work out. And that's not true. If you become a tither, but then you behave stupidly with money, you will just be a broke tither. That, okay, so if you tithe, but then you buy a $60,000 car with $5,000 wheels on a $35,000 income, you're going to be broke. If you buy things you can't afford with money you don't have to impress people you don't like, you will be broke even if you're tithing. So there's one part of it that's like, you've got to master the art of giving, but tithing is not a magic pill to overcome high levels of stupidity. It doesn't work that way. So I want, to talk, I want to be fair tonight, and I want to talk to you about both. I want to talk to you about giving, but I also want to talk to you about some principles of receiving. Because if we don't learn both, we run the risk of teaching tithing as if it's a magic pill for everything, and it's not. It absolutely is not. So, so let's, let's start with a, a few observations. Hit that first slide for me. Or the next one. Yeah. Well, let's say it this way. Money is a great servant, but a horrible master. I'm talking in general principles here. You want to organize our goal, if you're not there today, is to get to a point where you tell your money what to do, not your money tell you what to do. You don't want to get to the first of the month and your money says, well, I've got to go here and I've got to go there and there's Visa, there's MasterCard and there's Ford Motor Credit and there's this and there's that. You want to ultimately get to a point where on the first of the month, you're like, money, let me tell you what you're going to do. Let me tell you what you're going to do for me. This is what's going to happen now. So money is really good at being a servant, but it's horrible at being a master. If, if, if money is our master, uh, it's, it's slavery. It's a, it's a bad, bad plan. Number two, in building a Christ-centered community, how we think about our stuff is of utmost importance. Um, if all we want to do is go to heaven when we die, whatever. But if, we're, if our goal is to reveal what it means to be a kingdom of the living Christ in this world, then how we think about our things matters. Uh, n- number three, the seemingly small choices that we make today will affect big things tomorrow. So if you're here today and you're really, really, really broke, I want you to listen to me. 
There is a thing that we can do when we're really broke. And the psychological term for it is to freeze the present. Okay? So what we do is we get convinced that because I'm broke today, I will always be broke. And then we start to think like broke people think. And then what happens is, is we start looking at people with money and we assume they got lucky or they, somebody gave it to them or whatever. And all those things are not helpful. I have money today, but my parents didn't give me an inheritance. I grew up in the hood. And what I did was, is with the help of some wisdom and some people who gave me some advice, I'd made good decisions over a long, 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 long period of time. And at first it didn't seem like it was working very quickly. There was times I asked, why isn't this working faster? But then at some point it just turned and at 41, I can tell you I'm in a good place financially and it's not because somebody gave me something. It's because of the faithfulness of God to keep his promises and the stewardship of wisdom, right? So what I'm trying to say is, is that when we freeze the present, it disempowers us. When we say this will never, ever, ever be different, it, it disempowers us. We also can generalize the particular. So we try something and it doesn't work. And so we say, nothing works for me, right? You, you see this in church. So you ask somebody, hey, where do you go to church? And they say, I never go to church. I hate church. Oh, tell me about that. Why do you hate church? Church hurts people, right? Church hurts people. How did church hurt you? Oh, I went to church one time and there was this lady on the third row and she talked about me. That, oh, right. So one lady on the third row of one church hurts you, but to generalize the particular disempowers us, to freeze the present disempowers us. So what we do is when we try one thing and it doesn't work so well, we say, well, nothing works for me or I will never get out of this. And when we generalize the particular and we freeze the present, we run the risk of losing the plot because none of those things will be helpful. The truth of it is, is that if your only goal is to make it through today alive, then you can do almost anything you want to do that won't kill you. But if your goal is to be successful in five years, then the small choices you make today make a big difference in five years' time if you can stick to the small changes. Successful people do not make huge adjustments. Successful people make small micro-adjustments along the way, and then they stick to it over a very long period of time. It, right down this road, uh, up this way, is Oakland Airport. If you get, in Oakland, if you get, go, get on a plane in Oakland and you're heading towards Vegas, and you're one degree off course, welcome to Mesquite, right? That's no big deal. But if you get, if you get in a plane in, in, in Oakland and you're heading to Sydney, Australia, and you're one degree off course, welcome to Hong Kong. It's two different places. Why? Because a small choice today makes a very small difference tomorrow. But a small choice today, five years from now, a one degree change in course way down the road is much, 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 much different. And so the key to success is not getting lucky. The key to, as a matter of fact, the stats say that 50% of all lottery winners are broke within one year. 91% of all lottery winners 
are broke within five years. If you handle someone that can't make the wise decision, you can hand them $700 million and they will, they will blow it. Now you might think, oh, I would never do that, but 91% of people do, and most of us would not be the exception to the rule. The truth of it is, if you can't handle a million dollars today, then no one who handed you a million dollars, you wouldn't even know what to do with it. The, the question is, can we make right decisions today that make a big difference tomorrow? The key is not getting lucky. The key is not winning the lottery. The key is not all fortunate or unfortunate. By the vast majority of successful people, the vast majority of successful people make a lot of small good decisions and they stick to it over a very long period of time. That's how it works. Now, next slide. Couple questions. One, how did you get what you have? How did you get what you have? Two is are you stealing? Let me explain what I mean by this. All right? There's only two ways to accumulate things uh, in a credible way. One is to work for it and earn it. That is it. So, so the car you drove here today, you, you worked for it and you earned it. Or the other way is someone gave it to you, right? So you could either work for it and earn it, or someone can give it to you. If you drove a car here tonight and you didn't work for it and earn it, nor did someone give it to you, I would suggest you stole it. If, it's, if you worked for it and earned it, it's yours. If, you, uh, if someone gave it to you, it's yours. If not, you stole it. And here's the thing. Here's the thing we got to settle. Everything we have in our life, we either worked for it and earned it, or someone gave it to us. And the challenge in Scripture is to see our stuff this way, that everything I have is a gift from God. Everything I have. Otherwise, it's, wait a minute, this is my stuff. I worked for it. I earned it. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. The, the, what the scripture teaches is the best way to live. This has nothing to do with heaven or hell. This has to do with the best way to live is to see that our stuff is a gift from God. The third question is this. Do you need more than a touch from God? This is what I was touching on earlier. I would say it this way, like sometimes pastors say, listen, you need to get up here to this altar. If you're broken, we're going to pray for you. And, and God's going to give you a financial miracle because all you need is a touch from God. Uh, no. Um, a touch from God might be okay, but if you continue to act stupidly, uh, I'll, I'll say it this way. I'm positive. I, pre I, I, I speak for the leadership of the church. If you get lung cancer, we will pray with all of our heart that God would heal you from that lung cancer. But we would much rather you quit smoking today than to need a miracle in 25 years, right? In other words, if it's within your power to fix it yourself, you should fix it yourself. Uh, the, the second temptation of Jesus was, throw yourself off this mountain, and because God has a plan for your life, he'll catch you. Remember what Jesus said? He said, well, probably, but why would I jump off the mountain and test God when I could just not jump, right? In other words, if it's within your power to fix it, Fix it yourself. God is not duty-bound to fix stupidity, nor is he duty-bound to, to finish something he did not initiate. If God didn't initiate it, he's not duty-bound to, to finish it. But if he initiated it, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But when we just come up with our own stupid ideas and then presume upon God to fix that, that is not how it works. So, ne next slide. So these are the five pillars of wealth building to the Jewish community, okay? This is how the Jews think about it, keep in mind. 
uh, that the Jews make up 1% of the world's population and they make up 30% of the world's wealth. They might be onto something, okay? This is how they talk about giving and receiving. The five pillars are work, wisdom, honor, knowing God, and tzedakah. Tzedakah is the Hebrew word for generosity, okay? Work, wisdom, honor, knowing God, and tzedakah. If I was to do a five-hour conference on this, I would go through each one of these in detail. Because this is an hour-long single night, I'll just say it this way. There's a great cure for poverty. It's called get a job. It's called get up before 10 a.m. It's called when you get that job, show up on time. Dress appropriately for that job. Work hard. Show up early. Leave late. Don't steal from the employer. Work with integrity. Honesty. Act like you own the business, and one day you will own the business. It's that. Even if you're working for McDonald's, if you act like you own it, one day McDonald's will ask you to own one. Why? Because there is no shortage of them expanding their empire of horrendous hamburgers. But if you act like you own the place, one day you will own the place. Dress appropriately. Clean up. Shave. Wear deodorant. Wash with soap. Things like this helps us with our financial world. Helps us master the art of receiving. People say, oh, I can't get a job. I can't get a job. Yeah, but look at you. Like, like I wouldn't hire you. Like, come on, man. And it has nothing to do with me having a personal problem with what you look like. It has to do, see, the wrong question is, is this right or is this wrong? That's always the wrong question. Is this right or is this wrong? Man always asks, is it right or wrong? To, to master the knowledge of good and evil hasn't worked since Genesis 3. Man always asks, is this right or is this wrong? God asks a better question. God's question is, is this wise? Right or wrong, whatever. Is this wise? That is the better question. So work hard. The Jews work six 12-hour days. We work five eight-hour days. And we wonder, why do they have more than us? Okay, It's, it's hard it's hard work. You look at my life and you might think, oh, I wish I had his life. Yeah, but I left my house January 4th. I'm not back till November 29th. I've not been home since January the 4th. I'm not back to my house till November 29th. I'm home for one night and I have to go to Charleston, West Virginia the next day. Why? Because I'm trying to build a business and I work hard. You work hard. There's no replacement. Laziness cannot work. So you work hard. Two is wisdom. Let me give you a couple tenets on wisdom. This is going to sound obvious, okay? But nonetheless, spend less than you make and do so for a very long time. Well, hello. Spend less than you make and do so for a very long time. If you can't pay for it, you can't afford it. Don't borrow money, particularly on things going down in value, like cars, boats, jet skis, trailers. Don't borrow money on something going down in value. Okay, the borrower is slave to the lender, right? And this is the most important thing. Don't ever, 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 ever trust the government to do it for you. Never. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. People who make good decisions win. People who make bad decisions lose. It doesn't matter. It doesn't 
matter. The government is not going to make your life better. And in general, the government's not going to make your life worse. Sometimes their policies can make life a little bit worse for a certain group of people or a little bit better for this group of people. But in general, you can't put, you can't think this, if only someone else wins the election, my life will get better. It's not true. It's just, it's disempowering to you, right? It's never worked ever. Let me, um, the government's, let me say it this way. The grace of God that God gave the government is to protect us. When the government tries to be the provider, it never works. Never. Why? Is it because they're bad? No. Good-hearted people have tried to make it work. Good-hearted people have tried to make it work. It just doesn't work. Let me show it to you in the scripture. This is thousands of years old with a good-hearted dude, a guy named Joseph. Watch this. Next slide. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land. Right, so here's what's happened. Uh, he's had a dream. There's going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh says, what do I do? And, and Joseph says, put me in charge and have commissioners take a fifth. Now, when the government takes a fifth of someone's harvest, what's that called? It's called a tax increase. They would have already been taking some anyway. So he says, we're going to increase taxes 20%. Now watch his idea. We're going to take a fifth, that's 20% of the harvest of Egypt, during the seven years of abundance, and they should, collect, uh, uh, they should collect all the food of those good years that are coming and store it up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh. So we're going to increase taxes 20% and put the government in charge of that. Now watch his, watch his idea, and we'll, we'll keep those in the city for food. Keep going, next slide. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used in the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt. So let, let's make sure we understand him. We'll increase taxes 20%. We'll store it up under the authority of the government so that when the famine happens, we'll give the food back. Does that sound like a good plan? Sure. What, I mean, what could go wrong, right? So, so we're going to do that. The, the issue is, is a government policy like that is literally saying you're too stupid to save it yourself. Why not make a law that says you've got to save your own 20% and store it up for yourself. No, no, no. We'll take it. We'll look after it for you, right? And that sounds clever until watch what happens. Next slide. When the famine had spread all over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses. That's what he said he would do. And then he sold the grain back to the Egyptians. So he took it in order to give it only to then sell it. Oh, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. Now that's fair enough. Other countries coming to buy grain from you. Fair. You were proactive enough. But to sell it back to the people who provided it in the first place. Shoot. Because the famine was severe in all the world. So he takes it. Sells. Now was Joseph a good hearted man? Yes. Was it a good idea? Yes, but when you put the government in charge of providing, it never works. I was just in Denmark. In Denmark, it's 60% income taxes. 60% income taxes and 25% sales tax. So they're taxing you 60% of what you make and 25% of what you spend. What the heck? I asked the driver, I said, what the heck, man? He said, yeah, but our health care is free. I said, daggone, Bo, how, long, how many times do you get sick? 
What's the matter with you? It's a trick. You didn't think health care was free, did you? Oh, yeah, all these people are going to go to school for 12 years to provide services for nothing. Come on. Next slide. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. So Joseph collected all the money. <laughs> of course he did. He collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought it to where? Pharaoh, the government. When the money of all the people uh, of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all of Egypt came to Joseph and said, Now give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money's now used up. In other words, okay, the original deal was you'd raise taxes 20% in order to take care of us when we were poor. We're now poor, and you're selling it back to us. Fine, but now our money's used up, so will you keep your original deal and give it back to us? Uh -uh. Watch this. Next slide. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I'll sell you food in exchange for your livestock since all your money is now gone. See, once you empower the government, they have all the cards. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, and their donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for their livestock. So year one, it was food in exchange for money. Year two, it was food in exchange for livestock. What do they have left? Watch this. Next slide. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and says, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone, our livestock belongs to you. There's nothing left for the Lord except for our bodies. Now, when you're going to sell your body in exchange for food, what's that called? It's called prostitution or slavery. It's called slavery. Why should we perish before your eyes? We in our land as well. By us. They're offering themselves and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in what? Bondage. To Pharaoh, give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. Oh, oh! By the way, uh, if you read the whole story, the only people exempt from this government policy was Joseph's family. When governments make policies that they themselves don't want to live by, watch this. Next slide. So Joseph bought all the land that was in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. And the land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to slavery. Now, when Joseph started that government policy, what was his goal? To feed poor people. But when the government tries to be the prov provider instead of the protector, nothing ever works out. What ends up with that is slavery. You are in bondage to the government keeping their promise. And believe me, they're not that great at it. I don't know if you've noticed, but no matter who's in the White House, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Anything the American government tries to run financially goes broke. The U.S. Post Office, the government had to take it over. What is it today? It's broke. Government took over Amtrak. It's broke. The government took over the Mustang Ranch in New Mexico. It was a brothel on I-40 to provide prostitutes and liquor to truck drivers in the desert. They got done in for tax evasion. The government said, we're not going to shut you down. We're going to take you over to recoup the tax revenue that is owed to us. The U.S. government took over the Mustang Ranch, and it went broke. Listen, when you can't give away prostitutes and liquor to truck drivers in the desert, your business plan sucks. Right. 
All right. Next slide. Work. Work hard. Wisdom. Get out of debt. And if you don't hear me say anything else tonight, you can shut me off after this if you'd like. You work hard. It is not someone else's responsibility to take responsibility for you. You make a plan, you work hard. You act like you own the place, one day you own the place. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. Save up for it, and by all means, never, ever, ever think, if just the government would change, my life would get better. If you're over the age of 60, please tell me you know that that's not true. Politicians for years have been promising people a better life and they never, ever deliver it. Is it because they don't want to? No. It's because the grace of God is not on the government to provide for you. The grace of God is on the government to protect us. It is within our reach. And I don't want to state the obvious, this is America, man. I travel this world, and honest to God, when I hear people complain about America, I'm thinking, my God, man, this is America. If you can't make it here, where are you going to go? I travel this whole world. You weren't born in Syria. You weren't born in Sudan. You weren't born in Liberia. You were born in Oakland. Come on. You can do it. You can do it. Honor. Honor. Third principle is honor. So work hard. Wisdom. This is all about receiving. Working hard is about receiving. Getting up early, going to bed late is about receiving. Getting to the job early, working with integrity, everything you got. Wisdom, don't go into debt. Spend less than you make. And whatever you do, don't sit back and go, I'll wait for the president to change for my life to get better. What if the president doesn't change? What if there's eight more years of Trump? It's possible. It's possible. And I would say this, we had eight years of Obama and... Was life that much better for the poor? I don't think so. Before that, eight years of Bush, was it that much better for the poor? I don't think so. Before that, eight years of Clinton, was it that much better for the poor? I don't think so. Before that, it was four years of Bush, was it that much better? No, I don't think so. Before that, eight years of Reagan, was it that much better? I don't think so. Before that, it was Jimmy Carter, was it that much better? I don't think so. Why? Is it because these people want people to suffer? No. It's, they're doing their best. It's just not in their metron to make individual lives better. It's up to us to make the right decisions. And it's far more, I'll say it this way. You could sit around at night and complain about the government until you throw up. And when you wake up in the morning, your life will be the same. So whether you're right or whether you're wrong, it doesn't change your life. What does change your life is say, you know what? I can't change them, but I can change my life. And I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm going to change my life. Honor. The only thing I'll say about honor tonight is this, is the way they teach it is this. Because of sowing and reaping, if you ever purposely hurt somebody else, you can't possibly succeed yourself. If you live with malice, you purposely cause pain to somebody else. You gossip, you slander, you, you do these sorts of things. You can never, ever, ever. If you dishonor someone else's gift, the kingdom of God needs all kinds of gifts. I'm a teacher. It needs me. Um, I, I'm not a great evangelist. Um, I am a great teacher. The kingdom of God needs me. But the kingdom of God needs evangelists that aren't great teachers. Uh, the kingdom of God needs prophetic people that aren't great teachers. But the prophetic people need the teachers. And so, and so the best thing to do to win is to honor 
everybody, to honor, to, to never purposely do harm on an individual. All right, so I'll say it that way. So that's all about, that's all about receiving. It's all about receiving. But then the last two are about giving or about generosity. The first one is knowing God. That essentially the key to the best life is to know God. That sounds obvious. But then the question is, is what, is, what does it mean to know God? Let me show you a few scriptures here. Next slide. John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So this is about knowing God. But the question is, is when, when, in the first century when you said you need to know God, what did they mean by that? What did that mean in the first century? When I said, you need to, do you know God? What did that mean to them? Here's the, to me, this is the scariest scripture in the whole Bible. This one here, next slide. This is Jesus, red letters stuff, right? Um, and obviously I'm taking a bit of an informal approach tonight. This is me just sort of teaching and discussing and sort of being very, very informal with it. But it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, if that doesn't scare you, I'd check your heartbeat, right? That is scary stuff. Am I being fair to that passage to say that Jesus is saying that there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out? Yep. Okay, I'll go slower because I really want us to get this. Is Jesus saying that there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out? Yes. Now, why is that scary? It's scary because we all think we're in. All of us. All of us think we're in. How many of us in here have called Jesus Lord? All of us, correct? Well, Jesus said, just because you call me Lord doesn't mean you're entering the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes further. He says, not only do they call me Lord, but they prophesy, drive out demons, and perform miracles. So not only are these people saying Jesus is my Lord, but they're driving out demons, they're performing miracles, they're prophesying. So Jesus says there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out. And then he goes on to describe Pentecostal leaders, right? Who else is driving out demons, cast, you know, prophesying and performing miracles? I mean, Baptist from Cleveland, safe, right? right? This, is, this is describing us. Like, okay, let me prove it. How many of us have, have called Jesus Lord when we're not ashamed to admit it, right? All of us, right? Okay. How many, how many people in here have ever prophesied, Right? So a, few, a little, bit, little bit less, right? How many of us have ever seen a miracle, right? Maybe a little less, right? right? How many of us have ever seen a demon come out of somebody, right? Right, a little bit less. All right, all right. I, mean, I have two, right? Twice. I've cast out a devil twice in my whole life. I don't want to do it again. It's scary. They get strong and they yell. and It's actually, quite frankly, terrifying. So, um, so if you're here tonight and you have a demon, uh, see the guy over there on the right. He'll handle you. He, if you have a demon tonight, he is the, he's the designated exorcist. I don't want any part of it. So, so all of us have called Jesus Lord, and there's, even, there's a few of us who've prophesied, cast out demons, and performed miracles. So here's the question. What separates me from them? Nothing, and that's scary. So my question is, is, if calling Jesus Lord and prophesying and casting out devils and performing miracles doesn't mean necessarily that I know God, the question is, is what did it mean to know God? 
When Jesus said, I don't know you, do you know God? This is eternal life that they know you. What did he mean and how did the first century audience take that? This is where it gets easy. Because in the entire Bible, there's only one passage, one, one passage of scripture that defines what it means to know God. And that's in Jeremiah 22, 16. Next slide. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so it went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? As far as I know, that is the only scripture passage that in the entire Bible that defines what it means to know God. What you've done to the poor and the afflicted is what it means to know God. Essentially, the way the rabbis teach it is this. When you do something for someone who can't possibly do anything in return for you, that is when you really get to know the heart of God. Because that's what God did for the world. God did something for the world that the world couldn't possibly pay back. And that is the heart of God. This follows into Jesus' teaching big time. Who's the only person that Jesus ever said went to hell ever? A rich man overlooking a poor man. When Jesus talks about hell, he doesn't talk about prostitutes or drug addicts or adulterers or da 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 What's he talk about? When he talks about hell, he says, there's a rich man who overlooked a poor man, and when he dies, he ends up in hell. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? And Jesus met all a manner of sinner. There was a lady caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus is like, ah, stuff happens. <laughs> Don't do that again. Come on. You know? There was a tax collector up a tree. He's like, come on. Jesus went to a prostitute's house one time, and she washed his feet with her hair, and he's like, you're forgiven. Jesus was nice to everybody, except for rich people overlooking poor people. When anytime Jesus started a parable, there was a rich man, and he overlooked a poor man, it ends really poorly for the rich man. Um, Matthew 25, at the end of the day, there's sheep and goats, right and left, and the sheep are in, and the goats are out. And if you read it, he says, what they did to the least of these, they did to me. And what they didn't do, they didn't do to me. In their world, to know God was defined by what you did for the poor and the afflicted. Okay? All right. So, work, wisdom, honor, knowing God. Because, and the reason I spend some time on that is this. It doesn't matter if I give you the formula they use to give. If you don't have a heart that seeks to know God, what difference does it make? It just doesn't make. And what difference does it make if I give you the formula if you're going to sleep in till noon every day and not work? What difference does it make if I give you the formula if you're going to sit around and complain about the government all day? What difference does it make if I give you the formula if you're going to sit around and be lazy and blame somebody else and wait for another election? And come on! You've got to empower your own life. I want to I I tell you one more thing about the government, okay? Because I hear this a lot. I travel the world and in traveling the world, the world thinks Americans are spoiled brats. They do. They think Americans are spoiled brats. That, that America's got the largest economy in the world by 10 million miles, and yet Americans on the news internationally are the ones saying, our government's not doing enough to grow the economy so people can win. They think we're outside our minds. Listen, let me explain something to you about Jesus, okay? The spirit of Jesus Christ overcame the Egyptian empire. Did. The spirit of Jesus Christ overcame the Persian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Assyrian empire, the Roman empire. 
overcame the dark ages. I think he can take Donald Trump, okay? I think he can overcome whoever's in charge. The spirit of the risen Christ overcame Nero, who were taking, Nero was taking Christians, putting a stick up their rear ends, covering them in tar while they were alive, and setting them on fire to light his backyard, okay? And the spirit of Jesus Christ overcame that. Don't ever sell God short like he can't handle something. Watch your language. The spirit of the risen Christ is able to overcome all of these things for you, for you. And I don't say, I hope, I hope what you're hearing out of my mouth right now is a heart full of compassion who's just trying to empower us. It is disempowering to complain about who's in charge. It is disempowering to complain. Next slide. Generosity, last, uh, the last pillar. I want to spend the rest of the night talking about this. Work, wisdom, honor, knowing God, and generosity. So if I was to say you need to know God, and knowing God is defined by generosity, the question would be, what is generosity? There are 2,106 verses of Scripture that connect righteousness to generosity. That's more than prayer, faith, heaven, and hell combined. Um, 2,106, someone counted. We're not going to cover them all tonight. I'm just going to pick a few. Um, the, it's even in the language. The Hebrew word for righteousness is sadak. Sadak. The Hebrew word for generous is sadaka. It's the same word. Sadak, sadaka, sadak, sadaka, sadak, sadaka, sadak, sadaka. Same word. Righteousness and generosity were the same thing. In the ancient world, if someone was generous, they would say that's a righteous man. If someone was greedy, they would say that's a wicked man. When Jesus said, hey, there was a rich man who overlooked a poor man, and he was wicked. It's greed and generosity. Let me just show you a few of these passages. Next slide. So this is Psalms uh, 37. Um, this is what it says. I've been young and now I'm old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. For all the day long, he deals generously. Now, in English, there's a break there. Um, I've been young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken because he's a generous person. In Hebrew, it would simply say, I've never seen a sadak man because he does sadaka. A sadak man does sadaka. Well, duh. In, in Psalm 112, verse 5, a righteous man shows generosity. Once again, in Hebrew, it would be, a sadak man does sadaka. A sadak man shows sadaka and lends freely. He'll guide his business with fairness. Next slide. Next one. This is Isaiah chapter 1, one of the prophets. It says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Now, he's obviously ticked off Isaiah. Watch his solution to this. He says, seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Next slide. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be made white as snow. This was about generosity. What you did for the poor and the afflicted. What you did for someone who can't possibly pay you back. This is why I feel so connected to Victory Outreach. Of all the movements in the world that I speak with, uh, Victory Outreach is the one that I think is singularly the most sold out and committed to. Before we have church services, we want to make sure that we provide a way for people who are a bit down and out in life to get their way back. It's empowering. 
Um, and, and, and that's what we want. That's what we want to do. That was Isaiah. Next slide. This is Luke. This is Jesus, right? It says, John said to the this is John the Baptist. Sorry, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, "You brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as a father.' For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, is that any way to speak to your church members, right? People, people are coming to join your church, and you're like, you basket of snakes." You fatherless people. There's a word for that. It starts with a B. You don't want to call people that, right? Right? He literally says, you basket of snakes, you fatherless bastards. That is not a way to grow a church, is it? Right? Right? It's like, hey, Bo, hang on. We were just visiting your church. He goes, nope, basket of snakes. Fatherless people. Watch this. It gets worse. Watch this. Next slide. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. I would say to you that John is not a Baptist at all. John's like a Pentecostal on speed, right? The crowd is flabbergasted. The crowd doesn't know what to do. So watch what the crowd does. The crowd says, what should we do then? And John answered, the man with two tunics should share with the one who has none, and the one with food should do the same. In other words, that whole rant, you basket of snakes, you fatherless people, the axe has already fallen the root of your trees, you're going to be thrown into fire. The sin he was addressing was not adultery, idolatry, homosexuality. The sin he was addressing was people who hoard coats. It's let you who have two coats share with the one who has no coats. It was about generosity. About generosity. Next slide. This is James. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world system. The world system was get one up. James says, no, 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 no. When you look after orphans and widows, when you do something for someone who can do nothing in return for you, that is when you've really hit what life is all about. I would simply say this. If you take account of your life, if in the last 30 days you haven't done one thing for somebody who cannot possibly repay you, I would say your life is missing something. You say, Shane, you understand, I am that guy. Yeah, but you, there's people out there worse than you. There's people out there worse off than you. And, and you, can't, you can't live in such a way where you never bless anybody and then ask God to bless you more. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Next slide. This is uh, New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and bo sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one as he purposes in his heart, let him give, not of grief or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that in everything and having all self-sufficiency, you may abound to every good work. In other words, God wants you to get richer so that you can be more generous. The word good work there is sadaka, more generosity, more righteous acts. More. In other words, there's a cycle of giving and receiving. And if you never break the cycle, it won't ever break. You give, you receive. You give, you receive. You give, and it tends to spiral upwards. Watch this. Next slide. As it is written. Now, this is unbelievable. This is in the Bible. And I just think it, it throws a wrench in a lot of theology. As it is written, he scattered and he gave to the poor, so his righteousness remains forever. Now, this is New Testament. Is Paul not saying that your righteousness is tied to how generous you are? Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the eater, 
May he supply and multiply your seed and increase the fruits of your righteousness. That you being enriched, that's to be made rich, in everything in order to be all generosity. In other words, I want you to be made richer so that you could be more generous. It's that cycle of giving and receiving. This is something that really helped me understand finances. That God is not duty-bound to provide fruit. He is duty-bound to provide seed, and your fruit is based on the faithfulness of what you do with that seed. Seed is meant to be sown. Fruit is made to be eaten. If you sow your fruit, it produces nothing. If you sow your seed, it produces everything. If you eat your seed, you can't expect to get a harvest. So here's the revelation I feel like the Lord gave me for my own finances, is this. Is that instead of praying, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that. What if we prayed differently? And what if we said, Lord, would you be faithful to give me seed? And then give me the courage to sow my seed but the grace to eat my fruit without feeling guilty about it, okay? So in your life, God will give you seed. And when you sow your seed, fruit will come from that. But when fruit comes from that, you should eat the fruit, but you should take the seed out of that fruit and then re-sow it. That's how it works. So anytime a blessing comes into your life, your question should be this, is this seed or is this fruit? And if it's seed, you should sow it. If it's fruit, you should eat it and never feel guilty about it. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. That way you understand what I mean. I was standing at my resource table one, one time, and uh, I was at a very large church, and um, somebody walked up and handed me an envelope. And they said, the Lord just put this on my heart. I, I want to give this, I want to sow this to you. And that was their very words. I want to sow this to you and handed me the envelope. Now, you don't open the envelope. You just say thank you, and later you open the envelope. And when I opened the envelope, it was $10,000. $10,000. Now, their very words were, I want to sow this to you, right? But I knew in my heart, I was standing at the resource table, and we give 100% of the profit from that to the poor and the afflicted. So we have three orphanages in China that look after mentally handicapped kids. We have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets women out of sex trafficking. And so the wrestling I had to do was, is, is this, if it's fruit, I should spend it and invest it or whatever and not feel guilty about it. But if it's seed, I should sow it immediately, right? Now, can you see my dilemma, yeah. right? And so I had to wrestle with that. And, um, and so I called, I called one of my pastors. I, I, I prayed about it, and I said, Lord, is this seed or is this fruit? Is this seed or is this fruit? And I really felt like the Lord said, no, that's seed. The lady meant it as seed. You were standing at your table. You should give that to the orphanage, right? But, but can, can, please tell me you do understand, right, how I would want to talk myself into, um, in, into making that fruit, right? Okay. So I'm not alone in that wrestle, right? I wouldn't be alone, right? And so I called one of my pastoral oversight, and I said, look, this is what happened. I'm wrestling with, is this seed or is this fruit? And the pastor said, Shane, I know you, and you know you. You know and I know it's seed. You know and I know it's seed. And that's the biggest one-time seed anybody's ever handed you. And they didn't just put it in the bank account. They handed it to your hand. And the temptation now is to treat it as fruit. But you know and I know, if you eat your fruit, if you eat your seed, whatever harvest is tied to that, you just ate it. He said, can I please hold you accountable to make sure you gave that away? Because he said, and I want to be empathetic. 
I can see where you would struggle not giving it away. But it sounds to me like, he said, when you woke up this morning, did you have that $10,000? I said, no, I didn't. He said, so this is just divinely provided for you by God. Um, if you give it all away, you're still in the same spot you were this morning. Like, it's literally God providing you with a bag of seed that cost you nothing. Like, if you can't sow $10,000 that was just handed to you, you won't sow anything ever. And so I, I got off the phone immediately. I called my accountant and I said, why are the orphanage $10,000, right? He did that. The bank sent me a receipt. And as accountability, I emailed the receipt to the pastor that was holding me accountable. Okay? Three months later, I went to this very small church in the middle of nowhere. Why? Because small churches in the middle of nowhere matter just as much as churches, big churches in the middle of big cities. And little did I know, I didn't think they could even pay me anything. And um, little did I know there was a guy that went to that small church, church of about 25, 30 people. Um, there was a guy that went to that church that was worth $60 million. Um, and he was so moved by the fact that I flew myself on my own dime to this small church that at the end of the church meeting, he took me outside and he gave me a Cadillac Escalade. And so once again, I asked the Lord, is this seed or is this fruit? Please say fruit, please say fruit, please say fruit. And I felt like the Lord said, no, that's fruit. And you know what? I drove that car and didn't feel guilty one second. The next week, I went to a church. I, drove, I, had, I could drive to this church. I drove up to the church, and somebody saw me drive up an Escalade, and they went, ho, 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 must be nice to be a preacher. And I'm like, you have no idea the seed I sowed to get this fruit. And I wasn't going to explain it to them. I just left them suffering in their own torment about how lucky I must be. Four years later, the Lord spoke to me and said, give the Escalade away. And, and so I did. I'd eaten the fruit. There's seed in the middle of it. And uh, there was a family of five that needed a bigger car. And, um, and so I called him. He came over to my house. I handed him the keys. I said, it's yours. There you go. And so what, what, is the, what, if, what is the harvest off that seed? I have no idea. But I know I got an Escalade in the ground somewhere. Right? And, 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 so, and here's, the, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. If you can master the art of seed and fruit, um, uh, sometimes we, we go one way or the other. We'll say, it almost sounds like you need to feel guilty anytime you're blessed, right? Nobody really means to say that, but that's what it, it can sound like that. And I think it's really a matter of seed and fruit. If you saw somebody out there digging a hole and putting a whole cantaloupe in the ground, you'd think he was an idiot. But what you do is you cut the seed out of the middle of the cantaloupe, you eat the cantaloupe, and you don't feel guilty, but you make sure you sow the seed. When God provides you seed, our prayer should be, God, be faithful to provide me seed. Give me the wisdom to know when it's seed, and give me the courage to sow it. How many of you would honestly, I told a personal story, okay? How many of you understand how much bravery it takes to sow $10,000? <clears throat> Even though someone just handed it to me. It'd be literally like someone handing you a bag of seed and you being scared to put it in the ground. But you would understand my dilemma. I was like wrestling. I had to call a pastor. 
And just the fact, I think about it now, just the fact that I had to call him told me it was seed. And it is ridiculous that I would struggle sowing money that wasn't mine to begin with. It was, it was a blessing to me. If I can't sow that, what could God possibly trust me with? Now, the question is, is if I was to say, you need to be generous, what's your question? Well, how do I define generosity? Here's how they define tzedakah. They, they, the word is tzedakah, generosity. And here was their system for doing their money. Next slide. There was three dimensions of giving. There was first fruits, tithes, and offerings. First fruits, tithes, and offerings. Let me, let me show it to you in a, in a, in a bit of a, a better way. Next slide. So the first fruit had to become something called teruma. Um, they, uh, it was a very small amount. Um, in order for first fruit to be holy, it had to become teruma. Before it become teruma, two things had to happen. One, it had to be lifted high. And second, it had to be placed into the hands of the spiritual authority in your life. So for first fruits to become teruma, it has to be lifted up and then placed into the hands of the spiritual authority in your life. Uh, and it's a very small amount. Let me show you. Next slide. So here's the summary. Here's the whole system for how they do sadaka. okay? The whole system. The first thing they do is they give teruma. Teruma would be one fortieth to your pastor. Now, in case you're really, really bad at math, okay, that's twenty-five dollars on a thousand. It's twenty-five bucks on a thousand. It's literally a case of Coke, okay? Drinking Coke, not sniffing Coke. All right, <laughs> a, a case of sniffing Coke's more expensive than that. It's like, oh, oh man, no. Now, this is, this, is, this, this is drinking, drinking Coke, all right? Um, it's $25 on 1000 What they would do, I'm only picking $1,000 because it's easy to do math on. If they make 1000 bucks in their hand, they would take the first 25 of it, they would lift it high and place it in the hands of their pastor. Okay? And that sanctifies everything else. Do you understand how small that is? Like, if you're, if you're like, you know what? I'm not in a position where I can do the whole thing. Where do I start? That. Why not start at the first thing? And it happens to be the smallest thing. But it, hold, it, it makes the whole thing holy. Now, the next thing they would do is they would pay tithes. Now, this is where it gets weird because in English, we have one word for tithe, tithe. They have three words, right? But they, when they translate it into English, they, they translate it three, one way, so it makes it look like one thing. But they were actually three distinct things. If you do a word study on the word tithe, there's one place that says you should bring the tithe to the church. There's another place that says you should eat your tithe and then store it up as an inheritance for your children's children. There's another place where it says you should give your tithe to the poor. Well, which one is it? And the answer is yes. All right? So, so the, 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 the first tithe is called the Ma'aser Rishon. That was one-tenth to your church. The second tithe was called the Ma'aser Shani, and that was one-tenth to yourself. This will set you free if you'll get it. That God is just as interested in you saving money as he is in you giving money. There's a lot of tithers who tithe to the church, but they've totally neglected the tithe to themselves, and they wonder why they're broke. I've got to tell you how smart God is with this, hey. If you're over the age of 50, and don't answer me out loud, this is rhetorical, okay? 
But if you had saved 10% of every dollar you ever made, how much money would you have today? It is, let me give you the math on that, okay? If all you ever make is $25,000 a year and you save 10% of it from 18 to 65 and you invested it at the stock market average from 1929 to now, you would be worth $1.1 million. 10%, once again, successful people don't get lucky. They make small decisions and they stick to it over a long period of time. My mother, when I was four, made me tithe. So I was 27 before I realized some people didn't tithe. I just, because when your mom makes you, you just think everybody does it. And so even when my grandmother gave me a dollar, I'd have to go to the Circle K, get them to give me 10 dimes for that dollar. I'd put a dime aside and I'd have to put it in the offering plate. She would then make me take a dime to the bank and she started a savings account and we, she showed me how to do it. It was, I mean, it's unbelievable the sacrifice she must have went through to do that. I have, I'm 41 today. I have saved 10% of my income my entire life because my mother made me. My whole life. And I can tell you, I've never made a salary that would make any of you go, wow, holy smokes. I've been a pastor my whole life. We don't make big salaries, okay? Um, I've, on an average salary, basically, I've saved 10% of my income my whole life. And that's not a lot, but it's a one decision that I've stuck to my whole entire life. I was talking to my wealth manager uh, the other day, and because it just keeps rolling and then rolling and rolling, and there's something called compounding interest where at 12% your money doubles every six years. Um, he, he was telling me that by the age of 65, I'm on pace to have almost $5 million in that account. Um, and it's not something, and it, it, relax, I can't touch it until I'm 60. But, um, yeah, so, but it just, it's, it's a small decision, 10% over a long period of time. Um, do I want you to tithe to your church? Yes, but I also want you to grow until you tithe to yourself. I want you to, I want you to be successful later in life, and it takes a long time to do that. And what, what better time than now? Um, if you wonder why the Jews have so much money, well, if, if you've been taught your whole life to save 10% of your income, and then you leave that as an inheritance to your children's children, and that's their starting point, and then they do that, and then they leave it as an inheritance, and they, they, that's their starting point, no wonder they have all the money. Um, the third tithe was called the Maaser Annie. The Maaser Annie was one-tenth to the poor, um, and that was given in lieu of every third Maaser Shinny. I know that's complicated, so let me explain. I'll, I'll use today's language. In January and February, they would save 10% to themselves. In March, what they would have given to themselves, they give it to the poor. In April and May, they save to themselves. In June, they would give it to, in other words, every third self-tithe, instead of giving it to yourself, you give it to the poor, right? They would do it every three years. We get paid in months. So it's just functional to do it that way. So in January and February, I save 10% of my income. In March, I also save 10% of my income, but I match it to the poor. And, and then and in April, and you don't have to do it that way, but they, they would give it instead of. But April, May, save. June, 10% to the poor. Now, when you gave to Ruma, Master Rashan, Master Shani, and Master Annie, you were said to be a tzedakah, a generous person. They would say your eye is full of light. Now, I don't think I need to talk about the tithe much because we talk about that all the time. 
And I don't think that I need to convince you it's a good idea to save 10% of your income, right? I mean, do I need to convince anybody of that? That's like called common sense, right? Um, to save 10% of your income is a really good idea. Nor do I think I need to convince people of the, uh, the, the, the merits of taking care of the poor, right? I mean, we would obviously honor that. But the one that might be foreign to us is the Taruma. Um, the Taruma was a big part of their culture. As a matter of fact, the, in the volume four of the Mishnah is that thick. And it's all about the intricacies and the blessings that come with Taruma. It, is, it was an enormous thing in their culture. Uh, the Taruma is mentioned 87 times in the Bible. That is three times more than the tithes combined. Um, the problem is, is that in English, they translated it 13 different ways. So if you translate one word 13 different ways, you dumb it down to a factor of 13. So let me show you a few scriptures around this. This is the, the Taruma. Uh, next slide. Um, this is Leviticus 19.9. Uh, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them. Don't go over your vineyard a second time. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner because I'm the Lord, uh, your God. So, so when God gave his financial plan, here's the picture. Next slide. It's a circle and a square. He says, if you picture your life as a field, leave the corners for giving and live off the circle. So I asked a mathematician, what percentage of a square is a circle? If you throw a circle inside of a square, what percentage is it? And he told me, he didn't blink, he just said a, a circle inside of a square is 79% of the square. Um, if you're a nerd, it has to do with the fact from the center of the circle to the outside of the circle is something called pi, so that means across the square is 2 pi. Um, if you think pi is something your grandmother made when you were a kid, just trust me, it's 79%. Okay? Now, so the idea is that. Now keep that in mind, and let me show you some Taruma scriptures. Next slide. At, the, at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions for both first fruits and tithes. Tithe and first fruit were two different things. They were two different things. Next slide. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priests the first of our ground meal, the first of our grain offerings, the first fruit of all of our trees and our new wine and oil, and then we will bring a tithe. So what they did is they gave a teruma offering to their priest, and then they brought a tithe to the church. It was two different things. Next slide. Here's just a few more. What I've done is I've replaced the English word with the word teruma. Okay, that way you can see it because it's translated all kinds of different ways. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a teruma for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my teruma. It's Exodus 25, Numbers 31. And Moses gave the teruma to the Lord, the teruma of God, to Eliezer the priest. The teruma always went to the priest. It always went to the priest. It always went to your spiritual head. Always. <clears throat> Ezekiel 44, 30. And the first of all the first fruits of every kind and every teruma of every time from all your terumas shall be for the priest. You should give the priest the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. So the idea was is that if your spiritual head is blessed... It opens the door to um, other things being blessed for you. And the word for that was teruma. Ezekiel 48.10, And the holy teruma shall be for these, namely for the priests. So the idea in their culture was, is you always blessed your priest with a teruma. The teruma was a very small portion. It was one fortieth. It was one fortieth. Uh, it's, it's, it's essentially, if you work a 40-hour week, it's the first hour. It's the first hour. All right, next slide. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. Remember, when Proverbs is written, first fruits was teruma. That your barns will be filled to overflowing, your vats brim over with new wine. 
So the key to that increase was the first fruit. Here's Romans 11. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. If the root's holy, then so are the branches. The idea was is that if the first fruit is made holy by becoming teruma, then it sanctifies everything else. Next slide. This is Deuteronomy 18. And this is the share due to the priest from people who sacrifice a bull. The shoulder, the jowls, and the inner parts. In other words, if I'm your priest and I sacrifice your bull, I get to keep the shoulder, the jowls, and the inner parts. Yum, yum. Mm-hmm. But you were also to give them the first fruits of your grain, the first fruits of your new wine and oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord has chosen them and their descendants out of your tribe to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. He's to share equally in the benefit, even if he's received money from the sale of family possessions. In other words, even if the priest has money from somewhere else, you still honor Teruma. It, it, in other words, you don't honor Teruma because your pastor needs it. You honor Teruma because you do. Watch this, Numbers 18. <clears throat> no, sorry, next slide. Um, uh, this also is yours. He's talking to the priest. The Teruma of their gift. Even all the wave offerings, the Terumas. Of the sons of Israel. They, they called it a wave offering because they'd have to lift it. And I've given them to you and your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. Everyone in your household is clean can eat it. I give you all the finest olive oil and the finest new wine and grain that they give the Lord as the first fruits of their harvest. All the land's first fruits that they bring to the Lord will be yours. So the first fruit always belonged to the priest. It always belonged to the priest. <clears throat> and here's the thing. This was a cultural law. And my thing isn't that we should make it a law again. We shouldn't. We should do this out of a glad heart. Because if you look at their culture, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, you, gotta, you, you have to admit they have something when it comes to money. All the terumas of the holy gifts, which the sons of Israel offer the Lord, I've given them to you and your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is a covenant of salt. So, next slide. So why should I honor first fruits? Well, we should honor first fruits because we're commanded to. That's why. But we are also, we should honor first fruits because we are to share in all the good things with those who teach us. Paul said this, if someone's willing to live amongst you and teach you the word of God, he's worthy of your good things. Look, I flew here today. I didn't ask the church. I didn't say, hey, I demand my flight. I demand a hotel room. I demand all that. But here's the truth of it is, is that if I'm spending hours teaching you something, it's, it is good for us to be generous. You have, a guy, you have a guy willing to live amongst you and teach you the word. And not only that, if your children are sick, who do you call? Them. If they need a hospital visit, who do you call? Them. If you have a marriage crisis, who do you call? Them. The pastors are the heroes. I come, I go. Pastors stay. God bless the pastors. Right? What I do is easy compared to that. I get on a plane, I leave. I go to the next place. Now, there's problems with that, too. People sometimes ask me, Hey, Shane, why aren't you married? Well, who would marry me? What's my pickup line to a woman? Hey, see you in a year. 362 days, baby. I'm coming back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going to love it. Rock. <clears throat> I've made sacrifices to do this, but nowhere near, nowhere near the sacrifices pastors make 
to live amongst the same group of people in a community and be there for their needs. They're worthy of your teruma. They're worthy of it. But, but I think the biggest reason is God gave Christ as a first fruits offering. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus was given as a first fruits offering for all who died. Now, now follow the logic here. If what's true of the first fruit is true of the whole crop, if the first fruits of all who die is now alive, what's true of all who die? They live. First fruits was the principle that guaranteed a resurrection. And it's, the, it's also the principle that will resurrect your finances. If your first fruits are in the right hands, your finances can't die. It might look dead, but a resurrection's coming. Right? Now, that doesn't mean you can be stupid. It doesn't mean you can act without sense. It just means it unlocks something over your life. Remember, in their culture, what two things had to happen for first fruits to become teruma? It had to be lifted high, and it had to be placed in the hands. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if I be lifted up, <coughs> I'll draw all men to myself. And then remember what was the last thing he said on the cross? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Right? He was lifted up. He was placed into the hands. So three days later, when God the Father said, hey, give me my son back. Based on what? Based on the fact that the first fruit is in my hands. Now give the whole lump back. This has enormous spiritual implications that have nothing to do with money. But it applies to money. Next slide. So, to keep from answering this question a hundred times, let's give a real example. Okay? So let's say you make a thousand bucks. I'm picking a thousand bucks because it's easy to do math on. The first thing you would do is you would give $25 as a teruma to your pastor, which would leave you $975. Everybody, everybody follow the math there? 1,000 minus 25 is 975, okay? The next thing you would do is you would give a tithe to your church. 10% of 975 is 97.50, but because we don't want to do decimal points, we'll call that 98, okay? So you give $98 as a tithe to your church. That leaves you 877. Everybody follow that? All right. Then the next thing you would do is you have 10% of 877, which is 87.70, right? But we're not going to do decimal points. That's just stupid. So we'll call that 88, okay? So you would give $88 as a tithe to yourself or every third one to the poor, which would leave you 789. So the first thing you would do on $1,000 is give $25 to your pastor. Next thing, you give $98 to your church. Next thing, you would give $88 to yourself or the poor, depending on the month, Okay? Now, that leaves you 789. Let me tell you, say a couple things about that. One, if you're thinking, man, I'd love to implement all this, but I, there is no way. Shane, when you grow up, your, your mom made you tithe at four. But when you grow up your whole life not knowing to do this, and now you're 33 years old, and you're already living paycheck to paycheck, and you want me to lose another 10% of it. What? what? I can't possibly do that. Okay. Listen, first, no one can afford to tithe until they do it. That's one. Second, what I would do if I were you is instead of just throwing your hands up and going, well, if I can't do the whole thing, I won't do any of it. That's Homer Simpson logic. <clears throat> what you do is start implementing the one you can. And everybody can implement Taruma. Every person. It is too small. I mean, honestly, give up Coke. Drinking Coke. 
to honor Teruma. And then, and then make this sort of deal with God. Say, you know what, God, out of faithfulness, I'm going to honor Teruma. And when I'm blessed on that, I will, I'll implement a 1% tithe, a 2% tithe. I'll incrementally go up until I can put it all into place. Why would you not do any of it if you can't do all of it? Why not start here and then believe God for more seed, more seed, more seed? <clears throat> so let's go back to our circle illustration. Next slide. So 1,000 minus 25 minus 98 minus 88 is 789. 789 is exactly 79% of the square. So the financial illustration matches up with the math. It's almost like the writers of the Bible had a bit of help. All right? This, you know what it's like to live with 21% margin financially? It's called freedom. Really, this whole deal is not about forgiveness. It's not about redemption. It's about being set free from slavery. Because God is anti-slavery. He's, he's anti anything that tells you you're hopeless, you're powerless, you can't change your own life. God is anti any idea like that, and this will set you free financially. Absolutely. So I urge you, my brothers and sisters of Hayward, first of all, thank you for your patience tonight. This was an informal teaching time. You were a good audience. I got a little carried away and talked for an hour and 20 minutes. I hope it didn't feel that way. Okay? I hope that felt quick. Okay. Um, uh, second, I hope you heard my heart in this. My heart's never to be hard on anybody. I do want to empower you. The government is not going to help you. Your hope for your life is our Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of the risen Christ, taking responsibility for where you are and making really good decisions over a long period of time. That's your hope. Please take it. Build a heart of generosity. Work, wisdom, Honor, knowing God, and sadaka. Master the art of giving and receiving. And financial freedom can be yours because I don't want you just to be forgiven. I want you to be free. Until I see you next time tomorrow, 1 o'clock. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.